This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Helen Mann, sitting in for Carol Off. Hello, I'm Karen Gordon. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight's His Lucky Number. A businessman watches as his Kazakh plane tears apart at the 14th row of seats. He tells us he's only alive because he was seated in row 15. Boat time. An Indian sailor struggles to contain the joy of returning to his family after spending three years stuck aboard a ship in the Persian Gulf. Search for a killer. Someone is gunning down members of a herd of horses that have been roaming in eastern Kentucky. Our guest is trying to save the survivors before it's too late. Inimitable. Kelly Fraser broke through with an Inuktitut cover of an international pop hit. Tonight we pay tribute to a true original and the new life she brought to the language she loved. Careful, or he'll wipe the floor with you. We revisit our conversation with Nardwar, the human serviette. The tartan-topped interviewer whose no-holds-barred approach to celebrity research has earned him a spot on BC's Walk of Fame. And Chari Chari Night. We bring you the latest from Javle, Sweden, where every year they build a giant goat out of straw and then wait until New Year's Eve for someone to burn it down. As it happens, the Friday edition, radio that hopes this ends on a lighter note. It seemed like any other flight, but shortly after takeoff, things began to go wrong on this morning's Beck air flight out of Almaty, Kazakhstan. The plane, which was carrying almost 100 people, hit a concrete barrier before crashing into a two-story building. At least 12 people were killed and dozens more injured. Businessman Aslan Nazaraliev is one of the survivors. We reached him near Almaty, Kazakhstan. Mr. Nazaraliev, how are you doing right now? I'm exhausted, but uh, emotionally and uh, physically, I'm okay. Thanks God that I'm alive and uh, I didn't get hurt. Totally fine. I'm glad to hear uh, it. Can you tell us when you first realized something was wrong on that plane? Yes, uh, just after it took off from the ground, suddenly left side uh, wing, it uh, like shattered or like there was something very strange. Uh, swinging like uh, it affected the right side of the wing, then it lost the balance. It, it started like a swinging like a boat in a I don't know wild river. Just a moments later, the plane itself started shaking and uh, vibrating the whole body of the plane. What was the reaction from you and the other passengers? Panic. I mean, I, I mean, I, I was sure that something wrong happened, and I was like sure that crew, the pilots lost control of the plane. So I tightened up my seatbelt. And uh, at that moment, but uh, still the plane was trying to go higher. I mean, its uh, front end was upwards. It was still trying to go uh, higher. And what were you thinking of in that moment as these things were happening around you? Yeah, I thought about only one thing. What would my two daughters do without their father. So I was like sure that I would be dead soon. And the first thing and only thing in my mind was uh, my daughters. So I have two daughters, seven and four year old, and I was thinking about their future. 
how would they live without their father? Mm-hmm. So I was, I don't, I don't know, somehow I was not afraid for myself. You know, I was not scared for myself. I was scared uh, for my children. Right. Yeah. Describe the moment of impact, the crash itself. What was that like? So I was sitting in the aisle part of the row, seat number C, 15C. So I was observing front end of the plane. How would it react uh, when it hits the ground? Then, uh, yeah, then uh, when they hit the ground, from the front side, the uh, ceiling started coming down and smashing everyone, the ceiling from the front end. At the same time, it was like uh, falling apart, like in a movie, I don't know. It, is, uh, it was starting falling apart, all these particles. At the same time, the flo- uh, ceiling coming down. And uh, the last person whom the ceiling uh, the smashed was the number 14, the row number 14. So I was sitting at the row number 15. Uh, there was a one row before me. So that guy, he got smashed with the ceiling. And from there, it stopped immediately, so the plane. Then uh, afterwards, of course, right now, we know that it was a concrete building in front of the plane. It was a two-story concrete building onto which the plane smashed, I mean, uh, it went in to the building, the mm-hmm. first floor of the building. So I think the, it was like it hit the ground, then it was sliding over the ground, and it hit uh, this with its uh, head, the two-story concrete building, that it stopped the plane. It, it sounds it, absolutely terrifying. What happened after yeah. that? What did you and the other passengers do once uh, that happened? Uh, after that, immediately the, all the lights went off, and uh, from the right side of me, there was uh, one guy. I think he opened the emergency uh, exit on the row where we were sitting. So we quickly started coming out from the plane. So when, once we come out, came out from the plane, we I just stepped on the wing. But wing was very slippery. I think it was like icy. So immediately I fell on the, on my knees on the on the um, wing and then slided over it uh, to the backside. And everyone were coming out and they were all falling down same way i think falling from the on the wing then we immediately helped each other to cross the wing uh, and uh, we start going to the forward of the plane and it was dark all this time right well, of course it was dark all the time and uh, because it was 7:20 a.m. i think it was dark all the, all the time and the men who survived they start shouting let's help those guys who were asking for help i mean someone was screaming i mean it was like a, a mess over there so some, some people started lighting with their cell phone. Someone was shouting for lighter, I mean, trying to help with the light. And uh, we, some several guys, started pulling out, helping people who got smashed under this all this debris of uh, concrete, uh, ceiling of the plane itself. Were yeah. you worried yeah. while you were helping all these people that, that the plane might burst into flames? Yeah, yeah, that was my uh, personal scare. And someone also was uh, shouting about that that it would uh, go into fire because the plane is full of fuel. Yeah. But uh, somehow, uh, how to say, the will to help uh, those people who were injured really badly, I think maybe we were stronger than the risk of uh, danger of fire, I guess. So that was the idea. So it was all quick, but it took about, I think, 20-something minutes because uh, it was too long to, for survival to come. Everyone was shouting, someone was asking someone to call yeah, emergency, uh, someone was crying. 
I did lots of noise over there, yeah. And how long until the emergency people arrived? At least 20, 25 minutes, I think. Yeah, I think, oh. yeah. Now, we, we are told that at least a dozen people have died. Uh, as you said, the, these people were just in front of you, many of them. Can you yeah. can you share your feelings tonight on, on how you feel having escaped that? Actually, mm, I don't know. I, I didn't even think about that, yeah, how it's maybe tomorrow. Yeah, well, today, I maybe didn't realize it yet. But, uh, of course, it's very, very and very bad. You said earlier that you fly pretty much every week. Do you think you will yes. hesitate before you get on a plane again? No, I don't think so. Because uh, I believe uh, all the time that there are more car crashes than plane crashes. So I think uh, there is no use of I mean, being afraid. I mean, my personal feeling is that. But next time... I'll be more wise in choosing the airline company and the, analyzing their planes, I guess. You, uh, you had spoken of your daughters. Have you seen your girls that you thought so much of in those moments? Well, of course, of course. I actually, once we arrived to the airport, I immediately asked to go home and uh, I just, of course, immediately hugged my kids, my wife and kissed them. Then I told them that there was like some accident. That's why I'm back home again. Well, Mr. Nazar Aliyev, I'm very happy you're back safely with your family, and, and it's, a, it's thank you. terrible that there was this loss of life. I appreciate you telling us about it. Yeah, thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Take care. Aslan Nazalariyev was a passenger on a Beck air flight that crashed today near Almaty, Kazakhstan. We reached him in Almaty. Authorities are still investigating the cause of the crash, which killed at least a dozen people. A killer is on the loose in Kentucky, but their target isn't people, it's horses. Police and volunteers have found 20 bodies so far. The victims were from a herd of free-roaming horses spread over a mining area in the eastern part of the state. Now the only animal rescue group in the region is racing to get the surviving horses before the killer can strike again. Tanya Kahn is the president of Dumas Rescue. We reached her in Prestonburg, Kentucky. Ms. Kahn, are you any closer to figuring out who's been killing these horses? We've actually gotten some tips that um, our, our sheriff's department and the detective handling this case are investigating, yes, one step closer, hopefully, with each tip. How are the horses being killed? They're being shot. And, and what kind of, of uh, weapon, what kind of caliber of weapon is being used? Um, all we know at this time is a low caliber, a small caliber uh, rifle of some sort. And do you know the circumstances under which this is happening, the time of day, whether it's one at a time uh, altogether? We were notified of dead horses on December the 16th, and we went up to investigate on that day. But when we arrived, the horses had probably been dead looking at the rate of decomposition for a horse, probably a couple of days, at least 24, 48 hours. So approximately during the same time period that they were killed. Yes. Can you tell us about this herd? Uh, does anyone own them? Um, there was a lady that lived beneath the mine at the bottom of the hill that claimed ownership of five of the horses. 
But as far as the others, they are abandoned free-roaming horses that, you know, is typical here on the abandoned mine sites in eastern Kentucky. And last fall in October, there was a herd of about 35, and we removed seven of those that had came off into an, into a residential area um, and in traffic, and they were eating the, the paint off the cars for the mineral and actually licking the salt off the roadways. Um, because they're, you know, they're depleted of any minerals back there. And we, there was a herd of about 35 then, and we have counted 20 dead and six alive. So, Can you tell us about, it sounds like they're fairly integrated into the local community. Can you tell us about the relationship that people have with the horses? Is it, is it a positive one overall? Well, that's, that's a 50-50 thing. Um, some people, a lot of the local tourists and things that ride side by sides and ATVs back there like to go back there and feed them and, and give them a treat or see them, you know, because they will approach you for food. I mean, as far as haltering them or putting a rope on them and leading them off or riding them, that's not going to happen, but they will, you know, they are conditioned to approach you for food. And, you know, a lot of the people like to go back there and looking and seeing them, but then you have, you also have, landowners and people that have cattle that that graze back there and the horses remove you know horses will pull grass up by the roots and there's that leaves nothing to regrow cattle doesn't do that so you know there is there is that issue though people that graze their cattle on the abandoned mine sites versus these free roaming horses that take all the forage and as and as far as also there's there's the issue with people that hunt deer and elk and turkey quail, rabbit, or whatever on the abandoned mine sites, you've got hunters that, that have no selection, so to speak, back there to hunt from because the horses have removed all the forage and things that, you know, that hunters hunt, like deer and, and elk and turkey, you know, there's no forage back there. So those those animals migrate somewhere else. So that, that removes the um, hunting abilities on this site. So cl- so clearly the, the horses have enemies, I suppose. Yes, how many of the of the thirty five horses? There's twenty that have been killed. How many of the ones that remain have you located? Um, we are in the process of removing and locating the remaining six that were discovered. And the reason that we there's a delay in us removing them is the terrain to safely take a trailer back there, a horse trailer with panels, and and collect the horses and remove them safely because the terrain is so mountainous and so muddy and so slick that it has not been an option to be back there safely. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- these remaining horses, can you describe their behavior? Do they do they seem somehow traumatized by this experience? They're, they're traumatized. They will um, if they if they approach you, any slight sound or any kind of movement triggers an immediate response. And there's a $20,000 reward for information leading to the person responsible. That is correct. It's hard as an animal lover to even hear that this is happening from far away. Uh, what has it been like for you as someone who is, you know, connected to the community and, and the animals in the area? For us and the whole Demis crew and, and, and volunteers that helped, it's horrific. It's it's traumatic. That's the only thing I can say is it's traumatic. I I can't close my eyes at night without seeing them and, and kind of picking up on the fear. You can look in their eyes those of, of the bodies that are, of those that are dead, and, and you can pick up on the fear that they felt as they died because a lot of them um, probably were shot in the lung and they, and they laid and bled out, unable to breathe. They probably, you know, 
they didn't die immediately, especially the babies that were laying next to their mothers. When we discovered the bodies of the late of the sixth last Sunday, and there was a mare and foal that were laying together, and the mother had her head outstretched, and it maybe I'm just being sentimental, but it appeared to me she was trying to look at her foal, and the foal was was in in a position trying to look at her too when they died. I'm so sorry. It's really awful. I really appreciate you taking time to tell us about it, and I I hope that the police get to the bottom of this. I do too, and I and I just hope, I hope that these horses didn't die in vain. That this will spark some change with our legislation and our ability to have better animal laws and animal control laws here in Kentucky. I hope that this sparks a change and that we will be able to advocate more for more change. Well, good luck with the rehabilitation of the remaining horses. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Kahn. Bye-bye. Bye. Tanya Kahn is president of the animal welfare group Dumas Rescue. We reached her in Prestonburg, Kentucky. Every year, as it happens, brings you an update on a giant straw goat. The Yavle goat is a 53-year-old tradition in Yavle, Sweden. Part of the tradition is that every year, people try to burn it down. Maria Valbe is this year's Yavle goat spokesperson. We reached her in Yavle, Sweden. Maria, we always take such interest in the Yavle goat on this program. I have to ask you, is it still standing? Yes, it's still standing. And yet all is not well in Yavle. What has happened? Uh, last night there were some person who tried to set the little goat on fire. And uh, so he was uh, really burned, but not burned down. And when you say the little goat, this is the Yavle goat's baby brother. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's that's correct. So how did you discover it had been burned? I saw it on the uh, on the news this morning uh, because I'm the spokesperson of the giant uh, the javelin goat. So uh, media don't uh, call me if the, it happens something about, with a little goat. So so I saw it this morning. So you were were you surprised to to find the little one had been damaged? Uh, not surprised. It it had happened before, but uh, it's uh, always. Sad, but I'm uh, I'm glad that the the giant goat is still standing. So so, uh, but it's always sad when they get to, to our goats. Of course, I don't know if everybody knows that there's a little brother goat. Um, how big is it? Uh, it's about uh, I guess uh, three three meters high, and uh, the the giant uh, the javelin goat is about thirty meters high. So it's a it's a bit of difference. Mm-hmm. So he is really a baby brother. Does it otherwise, except for size, look essentially the same? Yeah, it it, uh, it is um, a, a school called Vasa Skolan in Gävle. It's a upper secondary school uh, with the National Science Faculty Club. That's uh, the students who built the, the little one every year. And that's a tradition, a long tradition also. And uh, a, a very great thing about this uh, uh, National Science Club is uh, 
that they were responsible for the Gävle goat uh, between 1971 and 1986. And without them, the tradition with the Gävle goat ha had ended because uh, the businessmen of the southern parts of Gävle got tired of all the fires. And if it hasn't been for, for these uh, students, uh, we can thank them for the tradition. Have you heard from any of the students? Are they sad today? Uh, I haven't uh, spoke to anyone of them, but I, I guess they are sad, of course. Mm -hmm. Now, the main goat, as you say, remains standing. Uh, how, yeah. how is it that he is still surviving this year when so many others he has not? Uh, well, uh, we have... Uh, uh, we have uh, guards uh, 24-7, security camps and, and uh, things like that. Uh, the Gävle goat has also double fences uh, okay. that are higher, so that scares uh, a lot of spontaneous attacks away, uh, we think. So we have had that for the third year in a, in a row now, and he's still standing. So I think it's a, a great thing to do. Regular listeners of the program will know that it hasn't always been so good for the Yavla goat. It hasn't often, some years, survived even to Christmas. So how many years has it been burned, do you know? Uh, there have been uh, 29 fire attacks and seven other attacks, and he has survived uh, 16 times. Uh, so that's uh, his 52-year-old <laughs> story. So there have been uh, many sorts of attacks, like hacker attacks. And he's been planned kidnappings. Uh, he's been hit by a cruising car and so on. So there have been a lot of crazy stories around him. Do you know what the fascination is with destroying him? Uh, I don't know, really, but uh, I think... Uh, it's uh, a little bit has changed now and inhabitants and fans all, all over the world get sad and disappointed if something happens with him. Uh, so I, I think uh, and I, I hope that uh, maybe he can be left left alone now and be the, the great uh, Christmas uh, tradition that he is. Well, uh, listen, I'm really glad it's still standing. You know, we keep yeah. a, we keep an eye on it from here as it happens. Yeah, that's we're, great. <laughs> we're big fans of the goat. So yeah, yeah. Well, I hope it lasts through New Year. And I, I wish you a yeah. Happy New Year. And thank you for speaking with us again. Thank you. The same to you. Okay. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Maria Valbe is the spokesperson for the Yavle goat. We reached her in Yavle, Sweden. And if you want to see photos of the Yavle goat, Go to our website, cbc.ca slash AIH. For Kelly Fraser, music wasn't just an art form. It was a form of healing. Born in Nunavut, the Inuk pop singer rose to prominence in 2013 when her Inuktitut cover of Rihanna's Diamonds went viral. But her dedication to Inuit language and culture wasn't a one-off. It was part of who she was and a way to inspire young people to learn the language and take pride in their heritage. To that end, she led music workshops with youth across the north. Kelly Fraser died earlier this week in Winnipeg. A cause of death has not yet been announced. 
Vikash Mishra had an incredible view of Dubai's skyline, but it was a view that tormented him. The merchant seaman has just returned to his home in Mumbai after spending nearly three years floating on a shipping vessel off the coast of Dubai. The ship's Emirati owners abandoned the vessel in 2017 after the engine broke down. Mr. Mishra and his crewmates hunkered down and waited for their pay. Now, finally, Mr. Mishra will be paid 80% of his owed wages, and he's made his way back home to his family in India. We reached Vikash Mishra in Mumbai. Mr. Mishra, what has it meant for you this week to finally see your wife and children in Mumbai after so long at sea? Ma'am, actually, when I came and I meet with my family, my kids, my wife and all, I feel happiness absolutely because it it was approximately 39 months abandonment. But I was very, means it was very disappointing also because my family... It seems like that uh, totally destroyed because of this abandonment. They are morally and physically and all. They are they are in a very difficult situation. And I don't know if I if I could understand this that the the, the situation what was there what was here. I will never stay that much long. Even if company will not pay me a single dirham, then then also I. I want to leave if I know that my family is suffering like like a hell. This tragedy I cannot means I cannot explain that what I lost and what my kids lost. I I, I completely lost the moment of uh, my daughter. How she start walking and how she start speaking. Can you describe for us what life was like on that abandoned ship for so long? Yes, ma'am. Actually. Initially, life was very good when vessel was not abandoned. When vessel was sailing, the things was good. Even there was two months salary delay was there, but it was okay. It was acceptable also because we can manage for two months. We can manage, but when once abandonment occur, afterwards companies start totally neglecting us. They were not provide, providing us sufficient provision and sufficient drinking water. Even in summer season. Here in Gulf, temperature could, uh, means in maximum temperature, sometimes it's 47, 48 degree. And that time we are getting 1.5 liter water a day. Means uh, in night time, we are, we are making wood fire and making food because there was no electricity. So life was, means very difficult, man. But I, I, I suppose to, uh, I, I, I talk to myself that I have to fight for my rights. That's why I stay so long time. Yeah, let me ask you about that because Elite Way Marine Services, which is the owner of the yes, boat, the, the vessel, they they abandoned the ship after it, the engine died. It would be hard. Yes, it may be hard for people to understand why you didn't get off the the vessel at the same time. Yes, ma'am. Actually, what happened that when once uh, we come to know that now they are not going to repair that actually one uh, main engine. Uh, tailor shaft was broken. It it, it was uh, the tailor shaft. It's control the uh, motion of the vessel. So it was broken, and company was no, not at all. They are interested to repair it. Even the vessel was loaded with cargo, and it should be discharged the destin- destination. But they 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 just simply ignored. And actually, I feel that in, in that time, the same situation was. Not only our vessel, company have nine vessels and every vessel had the same problem. So they finally decide that 
total approx 40 crew was there and everyone everyone have uh, means uh, i think more than 6 7 months 8 months salary was pending so they thought that if we will torture them so badly then they will leave and they they, they, they were successful also on that because so many crew they left vessel because they make their life hell they got some some got 40% some got 50% and so many they just left they don't care about money also so if you Means, left the ship still, if you left the vessel you would not be paid even though it was yes, not functioning yes this is this is yes ma'am if you will leave your vessel and you are outside you, then you are you are not a member of the vessel you then you cannot uh, claim your rights that my salary is pending i want my salary like that so you have to be even they are making our life hell and they are not providing us uh, uh, daily basis things that even though we have to be there because we want our rights that's why man mm-hmm. so they they are just they don't have heart i think while you were on that bo- boat, though, let me just clarify. It was considered illegal for you to leave the ship, and that if you had landed on shore, did you even have the right to be there? Did you have a visa? Yeah, actually, they said like that that it is illegal because you don't have visa and you cannot leave your vessel like this. You have to come through your agent and all. But I said to them that is it is the rarest case. We are abandoned. They are not providing us food. They are not providing us water. We are going to die. Now, the company has agreed to so pay they, uh, you 80% of your wages that you were owed. Um, afterwards, yes, ma'am. And, and how do you feel about the way they have treated you through this whole whole horrible ordeal? Yes, ma'am. I'm saying that we are living in 21st century now. And in this century, if a people is treated like a slave, it is, it is, means, uh, it is shameful. How did you finally get home? So finally, uh, uh, this uh, mission to see Ferris, I'm very thankful for them. Uh, actually, I'm very thankful for everyone. But this mission to see Ferris, Mr. Andrew Brownman, especially, he, he came like an angel for us. What are your plans so, now? Will you continue to work as a merchant seaman or are you going to try and do something else? Means I lost my, 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 my family is now they are uh, suffered. They suffered a lot. That's why now my plan is I, I, I will not go. If I will try to work here in shore, something, some small job I will do or some small business I will start and I will try to make my family happy. It is better for me and it is better for my family also. Mr. Mishra, I am very happy to hear that you are finally safe at home with your family. This is just a, a shocking story. Thank you for sharing it with us. Thanks a lot, ma'am. Thanks. Thanks. And I'm very thankful for all listeners. Thank all right. you, ma'am. You and your Thanks family take care. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. Bye-bye. Vikash Mishra spent nearly three years on a merchant ship off the coast of the United Arab Emirates. He's now returned home to Mumbai, and that's where we reached him. just win. She made history. But now Fallon Sherrick's run at the World Darts Championships has come to an end. Last week, the 25-year-old became the first woman to beat a man at the PDC World Championship. That put Ms. Fallon into the second round, where she won again. Today, Fallon Sherrick seemed poised to continue her streak. She was leading her opponent, Chris Doby, 2-1. to one. 
In the end, however, Mr. Doby beat Ms. Sherrick 4-2. to two. That knocks her out of the competition. But while she lost the match, she definitely won over the crowd. Some of the fans even wore blonde wigs and pink shirts in tribute. After the match, Fallon Sherrick spoke to Sky Sports reporter Mickey Austin. Even though the result wasn't meant to be. Oh, I tell you what, I've actually enjoyed myself so much. Don't you know, off the stage. I've enjoyed myself so much, and honestly, like Chris has played so well. And unfortunately, it wasn't like my result. But honestly, I can't take it away from you. He played so well, and honestly, good luck for the next round. But I've enjoyed it so much. And I mean, a word for the fans in here because they've been behind you right from the start. Now got fans even coming to the darts dressed as Fallon. So, did you ever think that was possible? Oh, no, I don't think this is ever possible. But yeah, thank you to everyone. Like, this is amazing. Um, hopefully, I can like experience it again because it's just unbelievable. That's Fallon Sherrick speaking with Sky Sports reporter Mickey Austin today. The 25-year-old was knocked out of the PDC World Darts Championships after making history last week when she became the first woman to beat a man at the event. Winning the lottery can change a person. Some splurge on a fancy vacation or a bigger house. Others can finally quit their jobs. Natalia Escudero thought she was in the latter camp. Mrs. Escudero is a Spanish television reporter. Last Sunday, she was covering Spain's annual Christmas draw. It's the biggest in the world with a prize pool worth more than $3 billion. And Miss Escudero found out live on air that she was a winner. Her number was for a prize worth close to 600000 Canadian dollars. Her reaction was to scream in Spanish, I'm not going in tomorrow while wagging her finger in front of the camera. Here's what it sounded like. That was reporter Natalia Escudero reacting on live TV as she realized she had a winning ticket in the draw for the world's richest lottery. But what Ms. Escudero didn't seem to know was that the prize she'd won could be split many ways, and it was. Ms. Escudero's share ended up being worth only $73,000 Canadian, and while that's nothing to scoff at, it doesn't seem to have been the quitting money that Ms. Escudero had in mind. She since tweeted out an apology, explaining she'd been surprised by the burst of good fortune after a few very difficult months. The best kind of gifts are thoughtful, meaningful, and a little surprising. The same can be said of interview questions. It's a bar we, as it happens, strive to meet. But it's hard to compete with Nardwar, the human serviette. The Canadian interviewer extraordinaire has made his reputation by shocking his celebrity guests with meticulously researched questions and gifts from their past. And in the process, Nardwar has received some stellar reactions. 
Like the time he asked former Prime Minister Chrétien if he would have taken a part in protests as a student at an APEC conference in November of 1997. I, I've been protested a few times in my lifetime. I did that myself too when I was a student. Do you think, though, that mace equals freedom? Some of the protesters were maced. What do you say? A mace, pepper spray, some other members. Oh, but I don't know. This technique did not exist in those days. (laughs) For me, pepper, I put it on my plate. That was former Prime Minister Jean Chrétien speaking to Nardwar the Human Serviette, a.k.a. John Ruskin. As it happens, trying to interview Nardwar once in 2015, that didn't work out. But in June, he was inducted into British Columbia's Entertainment Hall of Fame, and Carol made sure to get him on the phone. It's one of our favorite interviews of 2019. Nardwar, big congratulations. Thank you so much, Carol Off, as it happens. (laughs) Okay, so does this mean that your star is going to be embedded in a sidewalk and people are going to walk all over you now? On Granville Street in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, my hometown. Okay, which brings me to a very important question for those of those people in the country who don't know you, or maybe people even who do. What does the Nardwar, the human serviette name, where does that come from? Well, Nardwar is like a dumb, stupid name, like Sting or Sinbad. Human is after the cramp song, Human Fly, and Serviette. In the U.S., they don't have serviettes. They have napkins, Nardwar, the human serviette. Okay, so this, that's the name, and then there's the image, right? People actually dress up for Halloween like you, right? Again, I'm so honored that people care. I guess people kind of think, if Nardwar can do it, so can I. And I've been doing a radio show since 1987 on CITR in Vancouver, Canada, inspiring people. Hey, if I can do it, you can. So people kind of dress up like me. Anybody can do it. Kind of like you, Carol, getting involved in the London Gazette. <laughs> nice try, but it's not about me, this interview. But Don't try and turn... Upon London Gazette, and I stumbled upon CITR Radio, and the rest is history, and I'm still involved. But the reason why I can't dress up as you, because I have no idea where you get a tam-o-shanter in order to wear that on my head. Do you ever take that off? I got that, actually, on a trip my mom made to Scotland, and she brought it back for me. And the reason I wear a tam-o-shanter is Canadian heavy metal legend Sebastian Bach from Skid Row stole my toque. And because he stole my toque, my skull cap, I wear that Tamil Shantern. And actually, I dedicated me getting a walk on the Hall of Fame to my mom. <laughs> That's great. Okay, now listen, listen, you've got to tell us what your, your secret is for getting people to agree to interviews. Because you have, I mean, I don't think anybody has interviewed everyone from Pierre Elliott Trudeau to Snoop Dogg. I mean, what, how do you do it? A lot of waiting by the stage door for the person to come out and running up to them. In fact, my last interview with Snoop Doggy Dog, it only happened because the club owner in Vancouver allowed me into the club and Snoop walked up and confronted me and he said, I'll do an interview with you, only with you. Okay, but I bet you they don't know that you haven't just come to ask them some fan questions. You actually do some pretty heavy-duty research. Well, it's fun. Like, anybody can spend time doing research, but they can't be bothered to. Like, who else except me, Nardwar the Human Serviette, would spend <laughs> a week researching Snoop Doggy Dog? It's also asking fearless questions, because when you got Jean Chrétien, 
to mock, make fun of pepper spraying protesters at the APEC conference when you said, does mace equal freedom, Mr. Kretzian? And he says, pepper is something I put on my plate. I mean, that is one of the most surprising and shocking things that, that I've heard get out of Jean Kretzian. So, you know, you know how to stick the pins in, don't you? I was really scared when I asked that question. In fact, I went in disguise. I looked like an actual cub reporter. And I thought the media would actually complain about me and trying to get me kicked out of future events. In fact, they ran with my story. But, of course, they didn't credit, nor was a human serviette. They said a reporter asked. And I didn't mind because it focused the issue on what was happening, the pepper spring at APAC. But I was totally scared. In fact, even talking to you now, Carol, I'm scared. I'm always scared. And the minute I'm not scared is the minute I should quit. I just want to play you another clip. This is from an interview you did with Pharrell Williams in 2008. And uh, he once said that your research was second to none. That's where everything was laid down in Virginia. And I wanted to ask you, particularly Pharrell, about this joint right here. Is this where it all started right here with the rump shaker? Yeah. This is this is this is one of the most impressive interviews I've ever experienced in my life. Seriously. Oh well, thank you so much. It's great to be able to talk to you guys. This is this is insane, man. <laughs> what did you give to Pharrell Williams that shocked him so much? One of the first recordings called a rump shaker where he was a co-writer he was kind of saying who would bring this recording this record all the way to a hotel room that i co-wrote in my very early stages of my career so that's what he was freaked out by how are you doing physically because i know four years ago people were very concerned we were very concerned because you were in the hospital with a stroke thank you very much for the support i guess music Cures all. It happened once before where I had actually a brain aneurysm in 99. So when it happened again in 2015, I thought, here we go again. But the only difference was in 99, I kind of recoiled into a corner. But in 2015, it was like, music cures all. So they get out there and do it. You have a lot of support, and there are dozens of people who uh, were part of the nomination for you to become part of the BC Walk of Fame. So how do they keep that a secret from you? How do they manage to do that? I have no idea. I have trouble telling people that I'm legit. Like, the artists are cool, but their managers are sometimes a bit reluctant to, like, talk to a guy called Nardwar, the human serviette. But somehow, these 30 people were able to sway the BC Entertainment Hall of Fame. In fact, it kind of is sort of like an as-it-happened story. Like, Imogen approached me when I talked to Justin Trudeau in 2015 and was going to have me on as it happens, but it didn't happen. Happen. But she kept working, and here I am now, talking to Carol Hoff. Listen, we're gonna, we have to end this. But we want to play another clip, and th this is uh, Snoop Dogg, who, Snoop Doggy Dogg, who did a lot of interviews with you. And we have a clip from one of them, and here it is. A double shout-out to my nephew from Vancouver, you know what I'm saying? The Canuck, Mr. Nard, stay hard, ward. Well, thanks so much, Snoop. Keep on rocking in the free world, and doot-doot-a-loot-doo. Doot-doot. <laughs> well, you know, we're coming to the end, Carol, of As It Happens, my debut on As It Happens, and it makes me think, well, Carol, thanks for speaking to me, Nardwar, the human serviette, keep on rocking in the free world, and Carol, do-do-loo-do. Do-do.
From June of this year, that was Carol speaking with Nardwar, the human serviette, after he was inducted into the BC Entertainment Hall of Fame. And we have more on this story on our website, cbc.ca slash AIH. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1 and on Sirius XM following the world at 6. You can also listen to the whole show on the web. Just go to cbc.ca slash AIH and follow the links to our online archive. Thank you for listening. I'm Helen Mann. And I'm Karen Gordon. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.